0: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg
1: Radio.
2: The Trump campaign has filed at least six lawsuits in battleground states since Election Day to challenge the ballot counts. But so far, the suits have not altered the race's trajectory toward Joe Biden. Joining me is election law expert Nate Persily, a professor at Stanford Law School. Let's start with Michigan. So the Trump campaign said it filed lawsuits to stop the count in Michigan and they're basing it on allegations that campaign observers haven't had enough access to the locations where the ballots are being processed and counted. Is there any chance they could stop the vote?
1: No, I don't think so. I think that, um, you know, they're following the law in Michigan. Uh, and, you know, the, the part of the question here is how do you ensure supervision and social distance in the vote counting process? But, um, you know, the, the most of the ballots have been counted already. And so I think what we're seeing is just an effort to try to throw dust up in the air and see if you can create a cloud over the vote counting process. Uh, and so I've, we're seeing that in, in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania and elsewhere. And so I, I don't think it will succeed, but it's part of a larger narrative.
2: Is it part of a narrative or is it part of a strategy of challenging the votes in certain states to change the electoral vote in Trump's favor?
1: Well, the, um, the, the, the issue here is whether the absentee ballots are somehow tainted, right? And so there have been generic claims of corruption and fraud that even precede the election itself, where Trump said that um, the Uh, you know, the absentee ballots would be a fertile source for fraud. Um, But how do you have to, you can't just say that, you have to prove it. And so the question is, what, in what way are they fraudulent? Um, What is it that, that is being done in the vote counting process to suggest it? Because that's the only way you can get a court to intervene is to say, well, there's something wrong that's going on here. Uh, And so that, that argument takes different forms in different states, depending on what the sort of process defect was that the Trump campaign sees.
2: So let's turn to Pennsylvania now because he's suing also to stop the vote. Some of the same allegations here that they don't have access to the ballot process. Also, he's seeking to intervene in a Pennsylvania case that was at the Supreme Court where the Supreme Court, by a four to four vote, allowed Pennsylvania to count ballots received three days after Election Day but this case may not necessarily be
1: over. Tell us why. So they- the Trump campaign is seeking to intervene in the lawsuit that uh, already went up all- to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and in that lawsuit, the um, the state Supreme Court in Pennsylvania ruled that uh, ballots that are received uh, within three days after the election will count if they are postmarked by election day. Um, uh, because that decision when it went up to the U.S. Supreme Court was a 4-4 decision, and there was some possibility that with Amy Coney Barrett on the court, it would reach a different verdict. Uh, the, uh, the, the folks in Pennsylvania decided to segregate those ballots so that there'll be a separate count of those late arriving ballots. And as a result, um, if it comes down to those ballots, well, then there may be litigation over them. But because those ballots are segregated, um, if the margin of victory is large enough in the other ballots, then they won't even have to deal with that legal issue.
2: And will the Trump campaign likely be allowed to intervene in that lawsuit?
1: Well, either they intervene or it becomes part of the other larger uh, set of complaints that they have over the process, right? And so, um, you know... The, the state Supreme Court has already ruled on this issue. So we know what they think. Um, the question is whether that this will be joined with a set of claims that they're making about defects in the vote counting process that will then lead to some kind of federal court action ultimately landing it at the Supreme Court.
2: What kind of de- what kind of defects would they have to show? I mean, they're, they're, they're alleging that their campaign observers aren't allowed to view where the ballots are being processed. There's also a claim about some counties in Pennsylvania or a county in Pennsylvania allowing voters to cure their ballots. What would they have to show to make it a federal case, I guess?
1: So if you look sort of underneath the complaint and try to read the minds of people who are bringing it, This is trying to set the stage for a similar type of argument that we saw in Bush versus Gore. And it's two types of arguments. One is that voters in different parts of the state were subject to different rules. Some voters were allowed to cure their ballots, others were not. And the second, which is related, is that the ability to cure or the um, the ability to to remedy any defects in the ballot was pursuant to secretary of state guidance or local rules which go against state law that was passed by the legislature. And what the Trump administration has been arguing, um, a Trump campaign has been arguing in other court cases, is that, in effect, what you're doing is usurping the power of the legislature. And that violates Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution, which says that it's the state legislature which will choose the manner of determining electors for the Electoral College. Well, I think if it if it ends up being outcome determinative that I do think the U.S. Supreme Court might consider this. But we're a long way away from that. Right now, we are in the pre-litigation phase where the ballot counting is still going on and we need to make sure that every vote is counted. Um, um, once the uh, counts are known, then you can enter either a recount phase or a contest phase where you're starting to say there was something wrong with the processing and counting of these absentee ballots that would put this into doubt. And then you explain that, um, you know, in litigation that might make its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. But we we're still just in the kind of pre-litigation phase of trying to figure out how to count each one of these votes.
2: The Trump campaign says it's going to ask Wisconsin for a recount. It seems as if that might be granted because Wisconsin has a one percent margin is necessary for a recount. Has a recount ever you know, resulted in a change in in votes in a presidential election?
1: Not in a presidential election, but there are plenty of examples of where recounts may, uh, discover ballots, uh, or lead to the disqual- disqualification of ballots that would change, uh, the result. Um, it ultimately didn't happen in Bush versus Gore in the 2000 presidential election controversy, but there are, uh, situations most famously with, um, Al Franken and Norm Coleman in Minnesota and the recount that, that happened there where, where they sort of went back and forth. And it really just depends on what might be the claims as to why some votes should not be counted or why they might be fraudulent or others might have been excluded.
2: When you look at these various legal strategies that the Trump campaign seems to be trying out, do any of them strike you as more consequential
1: than others? Well, I I think that right now they don't even really know what the legal defects are in the process as it's unfolding. But they want to preserve the possibility that they will make these arguments later. And so they're throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. So a lot of these claims are frivolous, um, but they're trying to uh, launch certain types of claims, both to create doubt over the process, but then also to potentially litigate other kinds of claims uh, if they they have an opportunity, whether in state court or ultimately federal court.
2: Are they also suing in Nevada over absentee?
1: There is a use in Arizona, in, in Nevada, as I understand it, over the processing of absentee ballots in Clark County and how the signature matching uh, process may have worked. But I have not seen the actual legal papers there, so I've only heard this secondhand that this is proceeding.
2: When you look at this, the way this is evolving, is this how you expected this election to evolve, that it would be complicated and a lot of challenges and, you know, it would take a long time? Or is this something that's unexpected?
1: Well, I was looking at the same polls as everybody else. And so uh, I don't know why we maintained an irrational faith in them, given that they were so wrong four years ago, but they showed that this election would be beyond the margin of litigation. Uh, it still may be uh, that we're not going to end up with having courts decide important issues here, but um, I was as surprised as anyone um, and how close it was. But we all knew going into uh, November 3rd, that there were going to be a large volume of absentee ballots because in the wake of COVID, this is the way that states adapted to the COVID environment by by increasing the number of mail and absentee ballots. Um, we also knew that those mail ballots would be different in as, as compared to the same day vote because Democrats were more, more likely to use them. The president knew that uh, and also cast doubt um, several months before even the election day on the use of mail ballots. And so in some ways, this legal strategy was, was presaged early on with signals um, that the, there would be claims of fraud in the absentee balloting process. And now here we are, uh, where the election is coming down to absentee ballots in a, in a, in a few states. Uh, and if there is litigation, it'll be on that basis. But we need to remember that this is, again, the pre-litigation phase, and we're still counting the votes. Uh, and we need to see whether the margin might be, um, you know, too large for either candidate. Uh, such that they would be able to win without resorting to the court.
2: Finally, the way this is evolving and the fact that President Trump has been saying repeatedly that mail-in ballots are fraudulent, together with his comments today, does it make it seem as if the American public is going to have a hard time, the majority of the American public, believing in the results?
1: I think that was going to be true no matter what happened in this election. Um, There were large sections of the American public that did not believe this would be a free and fair election. I worry that that's going to be even a larger share this time, that whoever ends up losing uh, this election is going to feel that the process is illegitimate. Um, and, you know, it doesn't help when the candidates, if the candidates themselves uh, say so. Uh, and so I, I am concerned about this. I mean, we are, as difficult as, as the 2000 controversy in Florida was, we were a much different country back then, less polarized. Um, certainly no pandemic or recession at the time. And so we are not uh, well prepared for this. But we need to be patient. And patience is in short supply these days. And we need to let all the votes be counted.
2: Thanks for being on the show, Nate. That's Nate Persley, a professor at Stanford Law School. President Trump seems to be pursuing a contradictory strategy, attempting to stop vote counting in states where he thinks he's ahead while demanding the tallies continue or be recounted where he's losing. Joining me is election law expert Derek Muller, a professor at the College of Law of the University of Iowa. Is this the nightmare scenario that many election law experts were dreading?
4: So I wouldn't call it the nightmare scenario, right? I think... um I think everyone expected there was going to be some counting and some extension of a period of time where the, the ballots were going to come in, that in some states like Pennsylvania and Michigan in particular, there wasn't a whole lot of pre-processing of ballots ahead of Election Day, those absentee and mail-in ballots that um, you know came in by the millions in those states. Um, that was just going to delay some of the results. And so um, what we're seeing is sort of the inevitable result of uh, some of those delays, and, you know, some some shifts in the in the results of the election. Um, I think the, the nightmare scenario arises if it looks like one state um, is going to be the tipping point in the electoral college. And if that one state um, is decided by a razor thin margin or over some pool of disputed ballots. So um, I think we're sort of in the in the, you know, sort of uncomfortable waiting zone, but far from a nightmare scenario at the moment.
2: President Trump has said that we're going straight to the Supreme Court, we're going to stop the count, and the Supreme Court did stop Florida from recounting in 2000. Is that a possibility?
4: Yeah, so I think it's a very remote possibility, um, pretty unlikely at this point. Um, so the first thing to keep in mind is thinking about what kind of legal setup you have to say that you should stop counting in the first place. So there's a difference between stopping counting and stopping recounting. <laughs> um, so, so the counts are still happening. We haven't even finished those sort of uh, final totals, including ballots that have been received weeks ago in some states. So th- there's a very difficult sort of climb to say you shouldn't count certain ballots. Now, that's not to say that, that he doesn't have a case. You know, there, there were lawsuits in Pennsylvania in particular saying Um, these ballots that a state Supreme Court said should be counted that are received in the three days after Election Day, those with a postmark of Election Day or earlier, or those without a postmark should be counted. And the state said, you know what, we acknowledge there's a legal challenge to this. We're going to segregate these ballots. We're going to set them off to the side. And in the event there's a legal dispute about them later, we at least don't have to unscramble the egg, right? They're not mixed in with the other ballots and we can sort of address it. So that's like a a very narrow sort of decision to say, oh, these are the kinds of things that we're challenging. But in terms of like the ordinary state process of we have absentee ballots or we have in-person ballots and we're just sort of running them through the machine and counting them up, there's not really just sort of a a way of litigating that, much less getting to the Supreme Court, right? You start in the state or you start in the district court or or state uh, lower court, state trial court, and file under some kind of cause of action. So unless there's some sort of malfeasance and some legal hook, um, you know, that's not going to happen. Um, so it, it, it's not to say that, that there are opportunities to, to file those kinds of challenges, but but that, uh, you know, sort of a wholesale stop the counting is just not in the cards at the moment.
2: So let's talk then about some of the possible legal challenges. So let's say a state is very close, razor thin, also you have observers watching the counting going on. What kinds of claims right. could be made? Would it just be about the absentee, the mail-in, and the provisional ballots, or is there a broader claim?
4: Yeah, I mean, there, there's lots of different things that could be could be challenged in different respects. Um, there could be challenges to the provisional ballots. So folks who tried to cast a ballot at the polls, but, you know, uh, they lacked a form of identification or um, they lacked proof of residence or whatever it might be. And so they were turned away, but they cast a ballot with an opportunity to come back later and then cure that. And people might uh, challenge those kinds of decisions that are happening or um, they might look at, you know, if there's a some of these absentee ballots that might've been rejected for some reason, or that were, counted, uh, you know, with presumptions that the signatures were valid, and that looked like the, it was the identity of the voter, but were challenged by some observer and were sort of set aside. But these are sort of pretty narrow, sort of fact by fact questions, right, sort of uh, ballot by ballot. Um, and that's a long slog for a campaign, you need a razor thin margin in order to win on that kind of a theory. And by razor thin, I mean, I'm talking about a couple of hundred votes. Right? I'm not talking one percent. I'm talking about an exceedingly narrow margin. So there's, the, there's that sort of um, set of claims that can happen in narrow election. The other is, you know, maybe you can try to raise some kind of more systemic challenge. And, and that might be a version of what happened in Bush versus Gore in 2000. You know, the, the, the legal hook that really won the day at the Supreme Court was um, some counties were proceeding one way with a recount, Um, and others were proceeding in a different way. And uh, still others were not really counting at all. (laughs) And and when the Supreme Court stepped in, it said you had to provide some uniform guidance. So to the extent that it looks like there's some funny decisions happening in some counties, but not in others, there would be an opportunity to step in and say, oh, you're doing something different in this county that's not available in others. So one challenge the Trump campaign that has been filed in state court is, that one county in Pennsylvania was reaching out and contacting voters whose absentee ballots were rejected for some reason, inviting them to come cure the ballot, inviting the voters to come and say, you know, the, you fail to fill out this information or whatever it is, you know, let, let's fix it. Um, and if that's a practice one of the 67 counties is doing, does it put sort of the other voters on unequal footing? And is it sort of this sort of treatment that's arbitrary, as the Supreme Court said in Bush versus Gore, right, this really invidious sort of decision? So you would have to come up with a theory like that. But, you know, you have to think about it um, on the flip side, too, of a couple of responses to that kind of answer. The first is to say, well, um, you know, just because a county is doing something differently, how problematic is it? Inviting a few voters to cure um, you know, it doesn't seem like the kind of, um, you know, disparate treatment of we're, we're carefully counting ballots in one part of the state and we're not counting them at all somewhere else. I mean, so, so we have to draw the distinctions on that front, but another, and I think the more potent one is, um, is, is the notion of latches or the notion that you've brought this claim far too late. And there's a remedial bar that says you can't bring this claim at this point in time. Uh, you know, particularly in this case in Pennsylvania, uh, this is something counties have been doing for a long time. This is something the Republican Party has been on notice for, for uh, an extended period of time. And if that's the case, um, you know, depending on the length of time and how much notice they had and when they ought to sort of stepped in to, to say something about it, it's just too late. It's just unfair for us to step in and change things. So unlike Bush versus Gore, where the recount was sort of being developed on the fly and there were constant uh, pressing immediate legal challenges to it. Um, the, the more sort of longstanding nature of the problem makes some of these litigation challenges a little bit more difficult. So I think about that as sort of a, the, the system of things at play when we think about you know, challenges, even in a narrowly contested state.
2: Let's talk about the other case at, in Pennsylvania that went up to the Supreme Court, where the Supreme mm-hmm. Court allowed the counting of ballots in Pennsylvania for three days after Election Day, ballots that have been postmarked by Election Day. And several of the conservative justices, particularly uh, Justice Alito, said, oh, well, these are being segregated, so so we could consider this after the election. So tell us what was said by the Supreme Court there that may lead to this case coming back there.
4: Yeah, no, I mean, I, you set it up nicely, right? It's um, And the heart of this dispute really harkens back to another Bush versus Gore question, right? So the 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 question really arose in Pennsylvania over a couple of concerns. One is, uh, so Pennsylvania has a clear and explicit statute that says ballots are due on Election Day. That's when they have to be in. Um, And then there was a litigation challenge to say, listen, we've got this huge volume of absentee voters. Um, There are more people than ever voting by absentee. There are more people than ever who are relying on the Postal Service, the Postal Service Uh, whether uh, for innocent reasons or for service cuts, just can't handle these kinds of of, of volume of stuff. So we're challenging to say that we need to extend that deadline three days. And the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said under its free and fair elections clause in the Constitution, uh, which is a pretty generic phrase, right? (laughs) free and fair elections, looking at that clause that we conclude that the, that there's this sort of legislative preference for us pursuant to this clause to extend this recognition uh, of ballots, this acceptance of ballots, an extra three days. Uh, those postmarked by Election Day or those without a postmark um, that are received within three days will presume that they are valid, which is a little bit more of a controversial claim. And uh, when it goes up to the Supreme Court, they end up saying, well, uh, you know, Chief Justice Roberts has suggested, well, this is a state court decision, uh, so maybe it'll stay in place. But Justice Alito wrote separately, uh, you know, saying, you know, it's not just a, a state court decision. It's a state court decision that basically contravenes a direct legislative uh, guidance from the legislation that says ballots come in by Election Day. And when you do that, Justice Alito sort of emphasized, you are usurping the state legislative power, which is under Article II of the Constitution, each state shall appoint a number of electors in a manner that the legislature thereof may direct. And three justices writing in Bush versus Gore sort of had a uh, sort of emphasis on this prong of the Constitution. Chief Justice Rehnquist's opinion in Bush versus Gore highlights this notion that it's principally the responsibility of the legislature, and even before Bush versus Gore, just a a week before in the unanimous decision of the Supreme Court in a case called Bush versus Palm Beach Canvassing Board. Uh, The court said, you know, as a general matter, we defer to state interpretations of state law from the highest court, but not always. And it's because there's this Article II concern of the legislative prerogative to make these decisions. But, you know, it's a heavy lift, as as Justice Kagan wrote in a separate opinion that was uh, arising out of these disputes, to say, well, wait a minute. Uh, You know, when we talk about the legislature, can't the legislature be bound by its own constitution? (laughs) Can't the legislature be bound by the state constitution? as opposed to this other view from Justice Alito and, and joined, I think, um, by at least uh, Justices Gorsuch, Thomas, and uh, Kavanaugh and some separate opinions scattered throughout these, uh, these cases. Uh, shouldn't this, isn't is this sort of a federal prerogative to ensure that the legislative power enshrined in the Constitution and the federal Constitution is protected and not usurped by a state authority? So that's sort of the heart of this dispute. And Justice Alito had suggested, well, you know what, at least because these ballots are segregated, um, we don't have to get back to it. We don't have to go back, you know, we, we, or we, we could go back to it. We don't have to worry about the, 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 the pressing issue at the moment. But, but in my view, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I think it's really tough to look at these ballots. They're going to be counted. They're going to be counted and it's segregated in case there's sort of a fight about them. It would be really tough for the court to come back and say, you know, this batch of ballots that we were going to count um, that have been counted should not count. Uh, It's a little bit different than Bush versus Gore, which says whatever you're doing, stop, kind of freeze. Um, Going back and undoing it, I think is going to be a heavier lift. I think it sets the the post-election day challenge in a different procedural posture than the pre-election day. But time will tell. We'll see if there's litigation on this that continues.
2: And what's your take on Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion in the Wisconsin case that had democrats uh i don't know if the word is frantic furious or concerned
4: (laughs) yeah yeah so justice kavanaugh really i mean he started down this road that justice bolito later joined his in this other opinion right first really emphasizing the sort of primacy of the legislature to make these kinds of decisions and citing bush versus gore which is a, a case the supreme court Almost never cites. <laughs> uh, you know, since, since Bush versus Gore was issued in two thousand, Justice Thomas cited it once uh, in a concurring opinion for, for a pretty um, ordinary proposition. Um, and since then, uh, Justice Kavanaugh's opinion was only the second time the Supreme Court has ever cited Bush versus Gore. So this is sort of you know warning bells for those who are concerned about these state court decisions to say, well, wait a minute, maybe the uh, United States Supreme Court is really going to start taking these claims much more seriously. Um, and sure enough, I think Justice Alito's opinion also pointed in that direction. Um, but I think Justice Kavanaugh's opinion also gets at a greater concern. It's a concern he's um, written about in a series of cases that have come out of this pandemic, I think, in particular. Um, he's sort of written separately of his own views. These are sort of quintessentially um, legislative judgments. And that these are principally questions left to the political process. And for the legislature to make a decision about, um, as dysfunctional as the legislatures might be in some of these circumstances, right? I think Pennsylvania and Wisconsin have had, uh, legislatures really at heads, uh, at odds with the, uh, executives of those states and really unable to reach some consensus or agreement even in a pandemic. Um, but Justice Kavanaugh sort of writes separately to emphasize, listen, in, in the Constitution, it really places this principal responsibility with legislatures to the political branches to make political judgments. And that's not to say that courts can't step in or don't have some responsibilities of stepping in, but there's this sort of thumb on the scale of deference to the state legislatures in these cases. Um, so this is the sort of ongoing challenge, I think, on the court about you know, when do you give the deference to the state legislature versus when you don't? Or when are those instances where a judicial decision is something that sort of, uh, is sort of extraordinary enough to say, yeah, this was, uh, this needed to change the process, the existing rule in the state versus, uh, something the courts say is not so essential to do. This is sort of the abiding concern that's cropped up in these cases. And so, um, you know, I think the major question is, even if there's not a, a sort of hotly contested uh, Trump v. Biden case that makes its way to the Supreme Court, Uh, if one of these cases still makes its way to the Supreme Court well after Election Day, after the dust has settled, um, for the justices with full briefing and oral argument to reach the merits of these controversies and really uh, illuminate what a majority of the court thinks about how legislatures are supposed to handle these election matters.
2: As far as recounts, any of the states that are close, what would it take for either side to say, we want a recount and get it?
4: Yeah, so a lot, a lot varies from state to state. Um, uh, a lot of states have automatic recount provisions. If the margin of victory is within, say, a quarter percentage point or a half percentage point, um, but usually it's very narrow in order to qualify for an automatic recount. In some other states, uh, it, there's no automatic recount. Uh, And then in in different jurisdictions, even if you fall outside the automatic recount, uh, the parties can request a recount and that can be filed if the margin is within, you know, half a percent or one percent or whatever it might be. Um, So we'll know after sort of that preliminary canvas is done at the states, once they've gotten through counting all the ballots and provide that sort of preliminary figure. Um, you know, they'll usually go through another sort of round of, of double checking everything, making sure everything adds up correctly before a final certification in the state that happens. You know, in most places, late December, a uh, few places or, or late November, I'm sorry, a few places early December, a few places mid-November. Um, but, but depending on the margin, if it's exceedingly close, there will be that automatic provision in some places. Otherwise, it's really incumbent on the parties and the parties need to decide how much energy they want to expend, um, you often have, have to post a bond and spend some money in order to be able to, to, to request that recount otherwise. And maybe if the parties have some litigation money to spare, they're willing to sort of expend it and, and, and let the chips fall where they may. Um, but again, it, it's also increasingly difficult as we think about the margin of victory, right? Wider margins are just much harder to, to overcome the narrower margins. And if you're dealing with multiple states, it's much trickier than if you're dealing with a single state, um, I think back to the 2016 election where you know it was it was a few pretty closely contested states yeah one of the narrowest in Wisconsin which Donald Trump won by about 22,000 votes. Uh, Jill Stein the green Party candidate raised enough money to, to fund a recount there to petition for a recount and the recount really didn't change very much in fact Donald Trump's margin grew a little bit wider and, and that's a little bit different than if it's a hotly contested one and the parties are litigating as we talked about earlier ballot by ballot sort of walking through with these challenges but uh, that's sort of the recount set up, uh, something the parties will probably, you know, if, if, if it's close enough, you know, start start having the opportunity to file, uh, you know, starting potentially uh, next week.
2: Thanks, Derek. That's Professor Derek Muller of the University of Iowa College of Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grossell. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.